Welcome to episode 9 of our podcast series. This features material from our August 2021 edition of the Residential Aged Care Communique. I am Professor Joseph Ibrahim, the editor of that edition. This podcast will focus on harms that arise when we do not listen to the families and friends of the residents in aged care homes. We present two cases where the deaths of the aged care facility residents were investigated by the coroner's court. The cases in this podcast focus on the harms resulting from failures to listen carefully to family concerns. The cases also highlight where earlier attention and prompt responses to concerns raised by family may have altered the outcome. The podcast begins with my editorial. We then examine the two case reports in detail. The second part of the podcast is an expert commentary which explains both the need and availability of education for recognising and responding to residents when a palliative approach to care is needed. I also encourage you to visit our website where the relevant resources are listed. Let's now listen to the editorial. The contents of this podcast include an editorial, case number one, Ryan's Rule and Aged Care, case number two, Inappropriate Discharge, and Online Education, Recognising and Responding When a Palliative Approach to Care is Needed. Welcome to the latest edition of the RAC Communique, which examines two cases where early attention and prompt responses to family concerns may have altered the fatal outcomes. Failures to listen to families often leads to situations where the clinical team does not escalate care as needed. Families and friends are often better at recognising subtle deterioration in a loved one than health professionals. Our responsibility is to listen and take their concerns seriously, as it could save a life. An interesting aspect of the first case stems from the investigation findings following a formal complaint to the Aged Care Complaints Commission by the next of kin. The matter was also raised with the coroner, who determined that an inquest was not required. Our expert commentary is by Dr Anne-Marie Mahoney from the Australian Centre for Evidence-Based Aged Care, who explains the new online education and training programs designed for the residential aged care sector. This initiative from the Victorian State Government addresses matters raised by the recent Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety about staff recognising imminent dying and preparing for the death of a resident. Let's now listen to a description of our first case report titled Ryan's Rule and Aged Care. Clinical Summary Mr GF was an 89-year-old man with a gait disturbance and reduced mobility who lived in a residential aged care facility. His past medical history included atrial fibrillation, chronic kidney disease, heart failure and cardiomyopathy. One night, Mr GF was reviewed by the residential aged care facility staff and found to be unwell, sitting on a commode and slumped to the left. A little while later, around 2.45am, he was found on the floor by his bed with a reduced conscious state and a large amount of blood around him from multiple head lacerations. An immediate transfer to hospital was organised. 
CT scans of his neck showed a partial subluxation of the first and second cervical vertebrae, likely due to an acute injury, and after consultation with Mr. G.S. family, it was decided that he would not tolerate an MRI scan or a rigid collar for immobilization of his neck. The injury was managed with a soft spinal collar. Mr. G.F.'s family reported to hospital staff that he had been steadily declining over recent months and he had expressed to his family that he was ready to die. Mr. G.F.'s condition continued to deteriorate and after receiving palliative management, he died in hospital two days later. Pathology. The cause of death after post-mortem examination was terminal congestive heart failure due to an ischemic cardiomyopathy as a consequence of coronary artery atherosclerosis. The finding of the neck injury, subluxation of the first and second cervical vertebrae and atrial fibrillation could have also contributed to Mr. GF's death. Investigation. After an extensive review of detailed investigations completed by other agencies, the coroner considered that it would not be in the public interest to proceed to inquest. A review of the residential aged care facility's clinical records showed that Mr. GF had been medically unstable over the four months prior to his death, with recurrent falls resulting in injuries, including skin tears and a scalp laceration, as well as five-day hospital admission with crush fractures in his spine. On one occasion, Mr. GF's family contacted the residential aged care facility to report that he was distressed. When staff followed up, Mr. GF reported that he had slid out of his chair the previous evening and had required assistance from staff to transfer to his bed. There was no record of the incident in Mr. GF's files. Mr. GF's medical records also indicated that he was frequently suffering from shortness of breath especially after physical exertion, such as going to the toilet. In response to Mr. GF's falls risk, the residential aged care facility documented the following falls reduction strategies, including ensuring that only the top two bed rails were up while Mr. GF was in bed, that staff were to answer the call bell promptly, and ensuring that the bed height was at Mr. GF's knee height at all times. The medical file demonstrated that Mr. GF's health significantly deteriorated at the residential aged care facility four days prior to his death. He was short of breath, unsettled, and constantly needing to go to the toilet. On the day of transfer to hospital, prior to his fall, Mr. GF was unable to mobilise and had slurred speech. The deterioration in Mr. GF's condition was not reported to his next of kin. Following his death, Mr. GF's next of kin made a formal complaint to the Aged Care Complaints Commission. The nature of these complaints centred around five key aspects relating to Mr. GF's care, including that the residential aged care facility did not implement sufficient false prevention strategies, inform Mr. GF's next of kin about his deteriorating health prior to his fall, provided Mr. GF with timely assistance for toileting, escalate concerns about Mr. GF's medical condition or seek medical attention, including concerns surrounding an episode 12 months prior to his death when Mr. GF's family advocated for timely medical review of his red and swollen legs and provide prescribed medications in a timely manner and that on at least two occasions, his next of kin had to intervene by getting the prescriptions filled. 
Mr. GF's next of kin cited a number of concerns relating to the management of Mr. GF's continents. Mr. GF had reported to her that the night staff were reluctant, too busy, not caring, not interested in taking him to the bathroom or dismissive if they had already taken him to the toilet that night. He recounted waiting between 10 to 30 minutes for staff assistance. In one incident, Mr. GF had asked to go to the bathroom at night, but the staff had told him he'd already been, locking the bathroom door, which was distressing for Mr. GF. Further, when Mr. GF's next of kin arrived at hospital following his fall, he was reporting abdominal pain and was later found to be in urinary retention. The Complaints Commission found that the residential aged care facility did not have adequate force prevention strategies in place. Mr. GF's urinary urgency and anxiety relating to his incontinence resulted in him independently attempting to mobilise, increasing his fall's risk. The call bell and sensor alarms were not activated when Mr. GF got out of bed by himself. Whilst the family had requested the top two rails of the bed to be left up, there was no restraint authority given by the family to allow for all four bed rails up, which equated to a form of restraint. The Complaints Commission found it was likely that Mr GF experienced multiple occasions where he was made to wait for assistance, specifically in relation to his toileting care needs, which resulted in his subsequent self-mobilisation attempts. The residential aged care facility's records were deficient in the monitoring of Mr GF's toileting needs during the period he was unwell. The Complaints Commission also found that the nursing staff failed to inform Mr GF's family about his clinical deterioration, nor investigate, escalate or respond to his altered health status. Author's Comments this case illustrates many everyday geriatric medical and care issues that occur so frequently in aged care that they are almost considered inevitable. Falls, incontinence, fluctuations in health status and even cognitive decline may be incorrectly dismissed as part of the normal ageing process rather than being seen as significant health issues that require assessment and management. Of course, there is interplay between all of these syndromes. For example, urinary urgency resulting in falls or delirium resulting in worsening mobility. One of the core skills for those working in aged care is to identify changes in a resident's usual clinical state and recognise that deterioration is a medical emergency. The advocacy of Mr GF's next of kin also needs serious and genuine consideration. Families are often the first to notice changes in health status, yet find that escalating concerns to the right staff can be challenging. Queensland Health implemented Ryan's Rule in 2013 in response to the tragic death of Ryan Saunders in 2007. Ryan died in a Queensland hospital from sepsis. The toddler's death was found likely to have been preventable, and his parents, who knew him best, felt their concerns were not heard when he was deteriorating. Ryan's Rule is a three-step process for families or carers to escalate concerns if they feel their loved one's condition is getting worse or not improving in a Queensland public hospital. The three steps are, step one, talk to a nurse or doctor about your concerns. If you are not satisfied, step two, 
talk to the nurse in charge of the shift. And then if you still aren't satisfied, step three, phone the designated helpline or ask a nurse to phone for you and request Orion's Rule clinical review. This should mean a nurse or doctor will undertake a clinical review of the patient and the treatment they are receiving. Similar processes have been implemented throughout Australia and are often called the REACH. It stands for Recognise, Engage, Act, Call, Help is on its way. Whilst these processes for escalation of concerns currently only operate within some hospitals, the movement demonstrates partnership with families and advocates in the care of patients and accountability from health services. Let's now listen to a description of our second case report titled Inappropriate Discharge. Case number two, Inappropriate Discharge, from Case Pracy author Dr. Supriya Ramakrishnan. Clinical Summary. Mrs. K.S. was an 88-year-old woman who lived with her daughter. Her medical history included hypertension, supraventricular tachycardia, anxiety and depression, osteoporosis with kyphosis, anemia and deafness. One day in the middle of August, Mrs. K.S. fell whilst shopping and sustained a comminuted fracture of her right humeral head and was admitted to a private hospital. Soon after admission, Mrs. K.S. went into urinary retention and required an indwelling catheter. A few days later, Mrs. K.S. had surgery for a shoulder replacement. The post-operative care was complicated by episodes of pain, hypoxia and confusion. Laboratory and imaging investigations revealed a normal white cell count, minor changes on a chest X-ray and no growth in the urine culture and blood cultures. Over the next few days, Mrs. K.S. was anxious, intermittently confused and in pain requiring daily morphine injections and extra, as required, doses of oral opioid medication in addition to the fentanyl patch. Miss K.S.'s daughter expressed concerns to staff about Miss K.S.'s persisting confusion and pain, her high care needs and the challenges of returning home. About a week after the surgery, Miss K.S. had improved sufficiently for medical staff to consider her as being ready for discharge. Although still mildly confused, Mrs. K.S. was being transferred for convalescence at a supported residential service rather than going directly home. Mrs. K.S. was discharged from hospital and transferred to the supported residential service in a taxi, unaccompanied and wearing only a nightie and dressing gown. On her arrival, the supported residential service staff assessed Mrs. K.S. and arranged for a visiting general practitioner, Dr. C.T., to review her. Dr. C.T. noted that she was experiencing right side chest pain attributed to bruising. Mrs. K.S. appeared sweaty and crepitations were heard at her lung bases. Dr. C.T. was concerned about the possibility of delirium and withdrawal symptoms related to her recent opioid use. Her pain medication was increased to help ease her symptoms. On the evening of the third day at the supported residential service, family members noticed Mrs. K.S. was in pain and disoriented. Staff contacted Dr. C.T. for a medical review. However, a few hours later, 
Mrs KS was found pale and unresponsive. Staff requested emergency support and ambulance transfer to hospital. When the ambulance arrived, paramedics commenced treatment, but Mrs KS suffered a cardiac arrest and died. Pathology. The medical cause of Miss KS's death was sepsis, complicated by multiple organ failure in a woman with comorbidities in the setting of a recent shoulder surgery. The sepsis was due to a urinary tract infection. Investigation. Miss KS's daughter provided the coroner with written concerns about her mother's care. Some of the issues included medical care, poor communication, inappropriate discharge, lack of care during the transfer, and a failure of the supported residential service staff to act on Miss KS's deterioration. The coroner's prevention unit reviewed the care and the statements from treating medical and other staff. In their opinion, Miss KS was not fit for discharge due to her unstable and high pain management requirements, especially given that medical coverage is often limited over the weekend in general and at the supported residential service. If she had not been discharged, the development of septic shock in hospital may have prompted a more rapid escalation of medical care, improving her chance of survival. There was a missed opportunity for the case managers at the private hospital to refer for publicly funded inpatient rehabilitation, geriatric evaluation and management or transitional care programs. It was also noted that Mrs KS was not referred for assessment by a geriatrician. It was difficult to be critical of the delay in supported residential service staff to escalate management due to the nature of the facility. It is not required to provide medical and nursing support and is staffed largely with personal care workers. Additional challenges included that the events occurred over a weekend and Miss KS was not familiar to staff. The hospital acknowledged their error and issued an apology to Miss KS's family in relation to transferring her unaccompanied in a taxi in her night clothes. This also led to a hospital-wide education program regarding optimal transfer processes for patients. Coroner findings. The coroner found that Mrs. KS was inappropriately discharged due to an apparent shortcoming in clinical assessment and decision-making. In addition, the care staff had missed an opportunity to contact emergency services at an earlier time. Let's now listen to the expert commentary by Anne-Marie Mahoney from the Australian Centre for Evidence-Based Aged Care. Anne-Marie uses a case study to explain the importance of recognising imminent dying and preparing for the death of a resident. The commentary also addresses many of the challenges this presents for staff. The commentary is titled recognising and responding when a palliative approach to care is needed. Commentary, recognising and responding when a palliative approach to care is needed. From Dr Anne-Marie Mahoney, Australian Centre for Evidence-Based Aged Care and La Trobe University. The recent Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety 2021 reinforced what many working in aged care were already acutely aware of, that is, recognising imminent dying and preparing for death of a resident presents many challenges for staff. 
Take, for example, the story of Alan, an 87-year-old man who has been living in a residential aged care facility for the past three years following the death of his wife. Alan has a history of Parkinson's disease, diverticulitis, and prior to his admission has had an increasing number of falls. Alan is fiercely independent and is sometimes referred to by the staff as difficult and challenging. His mobility is limited and it is advised that he use a four-wheel walker, but Alan prefers to walk unaided and is often rescued from falling by diligent staff. Alan, his family and treating doctor have met on many occasions to discuss the risks for Alan and that a fall could have catastrophic consequences for him. Alan's independence is important to him and he, his family, and his treating doctor agree that if it comes down to it, independence wins over limiting Alan's mobility. Every day, Alan is at risk and staff monitor his movements as best they can, given the limitations of the facility environment. It was inevitable. Alan fell in the bathroom and hit his head on the toilet bowl, causing a deep laceration to his forehead and loss of consciousness. Staff acted immediately to administer first aid and call for help. What now for Alan? Please state that a fall with head strike requires transfer to hospitals and scans. Alan's advanced care plan says no active treatment, comfort measures only. A dilemma for all concerned. Should Alan stay at the facility or be transferred to the nearest emergency department? These dilemmas are real and making decisions in the best interests of the resident can be challenging for staff and families. We know this from experience and from the evidence presented in the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety 2021. Not implementing palliative care and failure to recognise imminent dying were issues consistent across much of the evidence presented by families. Some families reported not being prepared for the death of their loved ones because staff caring for them were unable to identify the signs of deterioration and impending death. Caring for residents like Alan requires specific skill and knowledge. Adequate education and training of care staff is critical for the provision of quality care and ultimately resident safety. In 2020 and 2021, the Victorian State Government responded to this need for increased skill and knowledge by funding the Australian Centre for Evidence-Based Aged Care at La Trobe University to develop a suite of online education and training programs for the residential aged care sector, which includes nurses, personal care workers and allied health staff. The Victorian Aged Care Education and Training Program is free, modular, self-paced online education. It is available now, covering three key learning areas, which include a palliative approach to care, dementia care, and oral care. A need for education in these areas was also identified through the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety. The program is designed in recognition of education and training needs of aged care staff and the important work they do every day, caring for residents and their families. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode. Remember, the print versions are available on our website at www.thecommunicates.com which also include a list of the recommended resources and references. 
I'm Joseph Ibrahim. Thanks for listening.